Okay. Okay. Thanks, Melissa. Thank you. Thanks, Trish. Thanks so much. Um, welcome to all the people that are new. Um, yeah, my name is Melissa Sam, a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York. And tonight we're going to jump right in. We're going to talk about more about alcoholism, which, um, you know, I say like every chapter is super important, but this is a really important chapter because it, it, um, it's the chapter that convinces us that we cannot do the job alone, that we cannot do this on our own. So, you know, I think the chapter could be called really more about how I'm crazy, right? More about alcoholism, more about how I'm crazy, or even better, more about why I need a higher power, why I say I am a person who must have an experience with the miraculous, like there's no other options for me. Um, and this chapter, what it does is it goes through story after story. And in each story, what is happening is that the doors that we thought might be the way out get closed for us and locked. Like that's really what's it. So that at the end of the chapter, um, we're just left with only one door. <laughs> and that one, you know, is the door to God, right? That one's a door to a relationship with God. So let's jump in um, on page 30. The first paragraphs um, tells us what our great obsession is. And here it is. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking, in my case, my eating, is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it until the gates of insanity are death. So one of my biggest problems is that I don't think I have a problem. That was one of my biggest problems for a long time. So I didn't really think I had a problem. Um, in fact, we're persistent about keeping up this illusion, this illusion that this really isn't a big problem. And despite the difficulties, we continue to live trying to prove a false idea. And, you know, and it's got a name and we know it, it's called denial right, that I could both control and enjoy my eating. And I can't do either. You know, one of the saddest moments I had at the end of my eating career was the realization that I wasn't enjoying this anymore and still I couldn't stop, right? I couldn't stop and I didn't even like it. Um, page 30, the second paragraph tells us the first step to getting well. Right. And here's what here's what you need to know. Right. What's your first step in getting well? We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. So we have to know this. We have to admit it and, and actually diagnose ourselves. This is why we don't try to convince others that they have a problem. The disease does the convincing. We have to know it inside, you know, and we have to know that we are not like other people, right? That we are, like I, I like to say, like we're that distinct entity that it talks about in the doctor's opinion, that I am not like other people. I'm not presently like other people, nor will I ever be like other people. And the third paragraph now tells us some of the characteristics of this disease. So here we go. Here's a characteristic of 
this disease, which is important to note so that you can fully diagnose yourself. You wanna know, all right, what are the characteristics? Well, it's permanent and it's progressive. And it says here, no real alcoholic ever recovers control. We are in the grip of a progressive illness. It gets worse, never better. So here's my, here's my experience that I have to offer. Um, my binges got longer. They required more food. They were more frequent. And the time in between was harder to tolerate. I couldn't stand that period in between when I was holding my breath underwater, not eating. And, you know, when I was younger, there was a time that I could um, binge. You know, I'd say like, I always tell this, like in junior high, I used to get together. I discovered like other people also like to pig out, right? And I had a group of girlfriends, um, my little friends, and we would get together on Friday nights and we would have slumber parties and we would call them pig out parties. And we would get the usual foods, right? Like the ice cream and the chips and the cookies and the pizza. And um, what would happen is um, my friends would pig out. They looked just like me. We, you know, they looked like they were doing what I was doing. But at some point they would pass out. They would go to sleep. And I didn't, right? Or I would be up half the night still eating more. You know, and the next day, everybody would go home cranky and miserable and like stuffed and saying, oh, my God, I'll never eat again. I'll never eat like that again. But I continued. Right. And and so what also happened for me, like that continued in college, too. I would you know, I would use I would use for me alcohol and drugs or a gateway. They're what I used to like and eat. And um and so I would, you know, in the beginning, maybe just started on Friday nights. Then it was Thursday nights. Then I was not able to stop on Sunday. Then I was not able to stop on Monday. And, you know, what happens is that um, we fit, in the beginning, we fit the binging into our lives, right? We have these lives and we fit the binging in. And then we try to fit our lives around the binges. When I try to like live my life around little periods of time that I'm not binging. And then really for me at the bitter end, my life was just the binge. It, there was no life. It was, it was very difficult because um, everything was the food. Page 31, the second paragraph begins to list the methods, right? The methods are what we use to manage and control the disease. That's what a method is. It's something people use to manage something and to control it. And, you know, they're also what I use to support the delusional thinking that I can control this. So if I could use a method for just so long, then I believed I actually was in control of it. And for most of us, that's diets. That's what we use. We The methods we used are diets or weight loss schemes and weight loss control plans and gym memberships. That was one, you know some insane exercise regimes. We had all sorts of different, you know, uh, concoctions, things we did to try to think that we could really do this on our own. And, you know, it's a good idea. I always tell people it's a good idea to list your own, right? List your own methods. What are all the things that you've tried? And, you know, what always amazes me is how many I've tried 
and how many I have retried over and over and over again. Like, and what it shows me is that lack of desire was never my dilemma. Because I tried a lot of things. I tried a lot of crazy stuff, which shows me that I had a desire. Um, and nor was lack of information because some of the things I tried really weren't crazy. They were quite sound. You know, I tried some of those weight loss plans that were really reasonable on paper that showed me I ought to be able to eat everything. I tried some, you know, exercise plans that were reasonable as well. So it wasn't information, you know, it wasn't desire and it wasn't information. Um, I wanted very much to stop. And I knew precisely the foods that were problematic. I knew them from a young age, right? And all of these methods, all the methods that I tried were extremely effective so long as I followed them. As long as I stayed on it, every single one of those works. And, you know, right, diets work. Like news alert, diets work. Diets are not the problem because diets work. If you take in less calories, you move your body more, right? You eat in ways that are reasonable, you lose weight. For me though, every diet worked until the day it no longer worked, until the day it didn't work. And then I could never get it to work quite as effective as it had before. And so I was always trying to get back on that diet that was, I thought, effective at one time, but it never it never achieved the same effectiveness. And I'd say that it's like, um, it's like a dog. Diets for me are like trying to fence a dog. Once the dog knows how to get out of the fence, you can't keep putting the dog in the same yard with the same fence. You gotta try something different. But I was always trying the same fence, right? Um, bottom of page 31 to the top, it gives us a way to diagnose the illness. And here it is. <clears throat> Can you control your eating? Can you eat the foods that are problematic foods in moderation? Can you do this consistently, right? Over a long period of time. And most of us, by the time we get here, we know the answer, right? We come here, I came here because that experiment was a disaster. That experiment did not work. I tried desperately to moderate. Nobody wants to give it up entirely. That sounds crazy, especially when the rest of the world is telling you that's being too restrictive, that can't work. You ought to be able to give yourself a little bit, right? So that experiment, if it were going to work, it would have worked. It would have worked on me uh, 45 years ago when I started my first diet. Um, if I could have, I would have. I would have found other ways to do this deal, right? And the chapter now is gonna give us four examples to help us determine some things and to bring to light some really important concepts. And the four examples that we're gonna get are, one, the man of 30, two, Jim, three, the jaywalker, and four, Fred. So in the bottom of page 32, we're gonna get to the man of 30. and. It says, um, so what the man of 30 shows us is this is an excellent example of a characteristic of the disease, patient. This disease is patient, permanent, progressive, and patient. 
um, he had stopped drinking for 25 years. He remained bone dry, it says. Clearly, he had exceptional willpower. Clearly, he had self-discipline. And what's important to point out in this story, as well as the other ones that we're going to discuss, is that the man of 30 did not accidentally trigger the allergy. I know sometimes we hear that, like, oh, I accidentally triggered the allergy. That might be true, but this particular story is not an example of someone who accidentally triggered the allergy. He wasn't being careless about what he was consuming. In fact, it's very clear he was bone dry, which means he didn't mess around at all. It wasn't like he took a sip here and there, bone dry. And, you know, and what's that to say for us? Well, that means like he was entirely abstinent and for 25 years. So we know that entire abstinence is important, but it's not the insurance and it's not the protection, you know, nor are years of self-discipline. We cannot make up our minds and rely upon our minds to stay made up. And if we are addicted, we cannot regulate and control, which is what he, you know, wanted to do. And, and my experience of this was, um, I went on my honeymoon, having been entirely abstinent for five years, but not really working a program. I worked in abstinence. I worked a food plan. Um, and what happened for me was, just like him, I looked around and I thought I was normal. I felt normal. I was in a normal size. I was on my honeymoon and I picked something up and that was it. That was it, you know? Um, and um, so gathering all his forces, right? So he picks up and then he gathers all his forces. He attempted to stop altogether and found he could not. And every means of solving his problem, which money could buy, was at his disposal and every attempt failed. And I'll tell you, for me, um, I picked up on my honeymoon. I ate so much, none of my clothes fit me by the end of my honeymoon, which is bad enough of a problem, worse enough. But I was certain that come Monday, when I got home from my honeymoon, I would be able to get back on. I was certain I would be able to. And I remember, you know, going to the store, coming home for my honeymoon, going food shopping, buying all those vegetables and all the healthy things. And it all rotted in my fridge because Monday I could not get that determination back. It was gone. It was like absent. Um, every attempt failed. So what's, what's the lesson here? Like, what are we supposed to learn from this? Well, if we are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol, right? So if you're sort of thinking, well, someday when I'm married, right? Someday when I retire, someday when I'm an older person, I'll just be able to eat and enjoy it. Like, that's the thing. I, I might say, you know what? I don't care. And, you know, at 90 years old, I'm just going to let myself eat again. The delusion is that I think I'll enjoy it. I won't enjoy it. That ship has sailed. 
I cannot actually enjoy. I don't enjoy eating. I enjoy eating abstinently, but I don't enjoy eating alcoholically. I just don't. Um, so although we say one day at a time, we mean we live in freedom each day, only taking on the very day that we're living. But it doesn't mean that we're delusional to think, well, then tomorrow I should be able to eat whatever I want again. Not the case. Page 34 in the middle of the first paragraph says, if you're questioning if you've entered this dangerous area, what's the dangerous area? The area where you are unable to quit on your own willpower, try leaving it alone for a year. This is another way that we can determine if we are in fact powerless. And we find this out not so much when we're having fun and we don't wanna stop, but we find this out when we wanna stop and we find we can't, right? I knew I was powerless, not on that honeymoon. I didn't know I was powerless on that honeymoon. I was having fun or so I thought. I knew I was powerless on that Monday when I couldn't get it together, right? From this point on, the chapter um, is gonna try to help us determine if we can quit on our own or if we are in fact someone who's going to require something beyond human power. And it's gonna do this by describing on the top of page 35, it's gonna start the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking. So now we're gonna get into our mind, into our mental state. For obviously, this is the crux of the problem, right? Obviously it's our thinking, it's our mental state that is the real problem. And you know, the crux of the problem, the crux is the most important part. So the most important part is my thinking. And it's gonna do this now by giving us three of the examples, Jim, the jaywalker and Fred. So Jim on page 35, it says, he was smart, likable, he had a beautiful family, inherited a business, yet his drinking was destroying it all. He was motivated to stop and was told about alcoholism and he made a start meaning he started on the road to recovery. So I would say, you know, for someone like me, it would mean like, you got a food plan, you started the food plan, you started the steps, you started working the steps perhaps, and his life started getting better again. And here's the important part. He failed to enlarge his spiritual life. And if there's, you know, any point that I really, really wanna drive home, it's that we have to have a spiritual life. My life must become spiritual. And it's got to continue to grow. I have to have a spiritual life that is always improving, increasing, getting stronger. Remember, this disease is permanent and progressive, right? So my solution which I've been told in the chapter that came before is a spiritual solution. That's what there's a solution is. It tells us it's going to be spiritual. So what does that mean? That my spiritual life has to grow as well. It must be progressive. I, you know, I also want to draw the point that when Jim picked up, 
he wasn't dropped and cast aside. I think that's an important thing to look at. Um, you know, which is why like, we like to say here that, um, you know, we, while we give good information and clear direction, we hope to do it with a spirit of compassion and love. Um, he was not tossed to the side for picking up. And, and the reason he picked up was not because he triggered the allergy either. You know, it wasn't like he accidentally did anything. But like the man of 30, he was sober. He was sober. He picked up because he was not safe and protected. Because he was not growing spiritually. And the bottom of page 35 says, he found himself drunk half a dozen times in rapid succession. And on each of these occasions, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. So they worked with him, meaning he was working too. He did some hard work there too, and they worked with him. Um, and, you know, it's hard and it's really uncomfortable when you're working with someone and they pick up. It's not fun. It's like, ugh. And it's frustrating too. Like, that's the truth. It's frustrating. Um, especially when people eat again. It's like, what? Oh, you know. Um, and we know he got drunk again, right? So what did they do? What did they do when he got drunk again? What do we do when people pick up again? They asked him to tell us exactly what happened. Like, this is what we do when someone picks up, when a sponsee picks up. Don't just let them say, I ate off plan again, or, you know, I binged again. Uh-uh. You know, we actually press them for details, push them to give exact details. Why? Because we're trying to help them discover where they fell off the track, where they lost that state of being safe and protected. And it's not to wag a finger at anybody because either the desire has been removed or it hasn't. If I'm powerless, I ought to know where it is that I lost power, right? That's the purpose. So let's do this with Jim. Let's look at Jim then, right? He had words with his boss. He had a resentment, right? He went to a bar to get lunch and a customer. He was already in trouble. He was angry. He was resentful. He was minimizing it. And he needed to do anything other than that. He was in trouble the moment he decided he was going to take a ride in the country, right? That was dangerous. And we can say that, you know, yes, he went off track way before he went into that bar. And our text tells us, though, that we can go anywhere. Anyone can go provided we're in a fit spiritual condition. But we also know he wasn't spiritually fit. And we also know how to get spiritually fit. It's through work and self-sacrifice. And he wasn't doing that, right? He, if he wasn't helping anyone yet, if he wasn't at the point yet where he had worked all 12 steps and was out there sponsoring other people, then I would say he's still in that hospitalization period that period where you, where you ought to have some really tight parameters between you and the food. He doesn't belong in a place like that. You know, it's sort of like me thinking, 
I'm real pissed off at my boss. I'm not working with anybody. I'm hardly through the steps. I'm going to go to Dunkin' Donuts and hang out and see if I can, you know, I don't know, find a customer, find a student. I'm going to find a student in, in Dunkin' Donuts. It's delusional. He's sitting there. He's having sandwich after sandwich and milk after milk. And here's where it gets clear that Jim has an alcoholic mind. Middle of page 36 says, suddenly the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered a whiskey, poured the milk. I vaguely sensed I was not being too smart, but I felt reassured as I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. Okay, this is a clear example of foolish thinking, right? We cannot rely on our own thinking. That's what this story is pointing out to me, that my thinking is unreliable. We lie to ourselves and so we believe it because the person that manufactured the lie is the same one who has to believe the lie. So of course you're gonna believe it, you made it up. Bottom of page 36 to the top of page 37, he had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic. Yet reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. And I love this because the next couple of sentences helps define insanity. So oftentimes, myself included, I didn't like to be told that I was going to be restored to sanity because I was like, what does that mean? I'm crazy. Uh, thank you very much. I'm not right. Thank you very much. I'm not. Well, here we get a definition of insanity. Whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? So insanity is lacking proportion minimizing the importance of certain things and making other things more important than they should be, right? Like a customer more important than his very life, right? Seems kind of crazy. You know, for me, um, lacking proportion, you know, um, my throat would hurt and I would want ice cream. So in that moment, my sore throat feels much more dangerous than this allergy that had me at over 300 pounds, right? Or, um, you know, fear of offending a host or looking a certain way to others because I eat a certain way, because I need to, you know, either bring my own food when I'm going to someone's house or ask them precisely what they're serving. If I am more concerned with the opinions of other people than my very life, that shows me that I lack proportion, that I have an inability to think straight. And I think, you know, a really good example of the opposite is um, I'm a teacher and I know every kid who has a peanut allergy in my class. Why? Because their parents make damn sure I know it because they don't lack proportion. They are not afraid of offending me. They're not afraid of offending any other mother. They're not afraid of their kid looking different because they know it's deadly. They know it's serious. 
do I have the same respect for my disease? I ought to. If I don't, it's plain insanity. It's plain insanity. You know, it says next, um, page 37, the middle, describes how consequences and sound reasoning are not able to help us. We have sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences, but there was always the curious mental phenomenon that parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea went out. So I, I love to sort of visualize things. I like um, to visualize different things, you know. So I, I envision it like a race, like they're saying, right? And sound reasoning versus the insane idea. Sound reasoning will never win. It will never win. Insane always wins. They run neck and neck, right? They're parallel. And then if I'm propelled on my own human power, I am no match for the insane idea. It always wins the race, right? Because it's a patient adversary. And I'd say it can run the marathon. Remember the man of 30? It ran a 25 year marathon, right? I don't have 25 years worth of running in me. So the insane idea always wins out. Page 38, the jaywalker, right? What's the jaywalker gonna teach us? Well, you would expect him if he were normal to cut it out. We're not normal. That's what the, that's what the jaywalker tells me. I'm not normal. We also learn that promises don't work because he makes promises, nor does being ridiculed. He was ridiculed. Normal people can generally make promises and keep them. Compare this to the doctor's opinion where recovered people's words are reliable, right? That's what happens. Our word becomes reliable. Before that, not so much. I can't maintain my mind to stay, you know, to stay stuck on what I decide. We can keep our word, but not so with those who are still in the clutches of the illness. Page 39 says, the actual or potential alcoholic with hardly an exception will be unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. And we're gonna read about Fred to illustrate this point. Fred is living a beautiful life, right? Happy home, great marriage, promising kids, successful in business and well-liked. So you don't have to be living like a train wreck to have this problem either. You don't have to be living a very visible mess. In fact, I think that's very true for compulsive overeaters. We often don't lose custody of our kids. We often don't get DWIs, right? Many of us can consistently pay our mortgage, maintain employment for the most part. You know, you can present quite well and you can have no other notable problems. What happened to Fred? He wound up in the hospital. And although he was embarrassed. Did you just turn her off? Although 
he was embarrassed by what had happened to him. He didn't even admit what the problem was at all. In fact, he said that he was there to rest his nerves. He was depressed about his drinking. And so he made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. He didn't believe that he was an alcoholic. So what was his real problem? Well, he had no step one. He didn't even believe that he really had this thing. And he certainly didn't have a step two because he didn't accept a spiritual remedy for the problem. He didn't think he needed a spiritual remedy. He thought he could do the job on his own. And the top of page 40 says he was positive that his humiliating experience plus the knowledge he acquired would keep him sober the rest of his life. Self-knowledge would fix it. Well, we know that that was a failure for him. We're also told that everything went great for Fred. He exercised willpower and thought he can stay on guard. So willpower is an unreliable power source for us with this particular disease. I can use willpower in many other areas of my life. I cannot use willpower with the food. And willpower, I've had willpower with the food before. And I say it's got an unpredictable expiration date. I don't know when my willpower gives out. It looks like I have it, it's working great, and then it's gone in the moments when I needed it the most, just gone. And, you know, I'd say it's, it's like, um, it has an expiration date, but it's a mystery. It's a great mystery. It's not like it's stamped on the carton of milk. I don't know when it's gonna run out. Um, and the problem, you know, with staying on guard is who's the guard, right? If you're staying on guard, you're the guard. It's like putting the wolf in charge of the picnic basket, right? I'm just not qualified to be the guard for me. I lock myself, you know, I lock the enemy out or so I believe, but I'm the enemy. And I just locked myself in with my greatest danger, right? So willpower and staying on guard does not work. Um, in the middle of page 41, Fred is describing that experience of crossing the threshold into the dining room. And he thinks that it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner, you know? And it's, I, I think it's so similar to the story told in the chapter of Vision for You. It's like a contrasting story where Bill has a similar thought where he says, perhaps he could handle say three drinks, no more. But instead, Bill recoiled and made a call looking for someone he could help. And um, Fred did not. So Bill, who had a business deal go south, did not drink. And Fred, whose business went off well, did drink, right? Which is, you know, it reminds me again about my honeymoon because I've, I've eaten when everything falls to crap in my life, but I've eaten on my honeymoon when everything was great, right? Um, and it says again, not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatever against the first drink. This time I had not thought of the consequences at all. I had commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. 
here's part of the insanity. He truly, we truly cannot protect ourselves from danger because the things that are dangerous to us seem harmless. That's been my, you know, my experience as someone who sponsors and someone who's had this, you know, disease as well. The food rarely comes in as a cupcake. That is not where it comes in. It comes in harmless. It comes in with switching things. It comes with, with a little bit of, I got away with itism. You do something that's not quite full on and you get away with it or so you think, but that's how this disease works. I'd say, you know, if it's cunning, baffling and powerful, it lets you think you got away with it, right? So that little by little, your integrity is gone and you're living with a lot of dishonesty. And at that point, you might as well eat. That's what happens, you might as well eat. Um, page 42 at the top, it's repeated again. Willpower and self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blank spots. And at this, Fred is crushed. Now, you know, he's in the hospital and two members come to see him in the hospital and they're smiling, it says. And he doesn't like it, right? Why? Why are they smiling? They're not sadistic, right? They're not like happy that someone's in such misery. Um, I think they're smiling because they're there to help. And we learn right in the beginning of this chapter that we have to fully concede before anything can be done to, to help us. So I think like they're smiling because when we see people that are really in that desperate state, we know that we are closer to being able to help them, that they're closer to being able to accept what we have to offer. Um, you know, I love how we're being shown exactly how we can carry the message. They asked him if he thought himself alcoholic and if he was licked. And when he said yes, they didn't start cheering him up. They didn't say, oh, you're going to be okay now. They didn't offer him hope like that. Mm -mm. What did they do? They told the truth that this was a hopeless condition. And they talked about their own sufferings. They told their stories. That's what we do when we meet people who are in pain with this disease and suffering. We don't rush in and cheer them up. We start telling them our story. All the lengths we went to, all the failures we've had, all the obstacles, all the things that didn't work, right? And once Fred admitted that he couldn't do it on his own, then they outlined the spiritual answer. You know, we wait until the person says, well, then what did you do? And then we can tell them what we did. We don't start off with direction. We start off with the necessity for the directions, right? We start off drilling in the importance of how nothing else works. That makes people more ready to hear even what the directions are. Um, you know, and they, um, you have to know that you're out of options before being truly willing to accept the spiritual solution. Our solution requires 
throwing some lifelong conceptions out the window. That's not easy. And what it makes me think of is how my set of directions provides me with a new code and a new life structure and a new life purpose. And that's not easy. That's not easy to adapt a whole new set of guiding principles, unless you're convinced that yours has been leading you to ruin, right? If you felt like your guiding principles were working so well, everything's going well for you, there'd be no enthusiasm for doing any of this. What gives you enthusiasm for looking at adopting some new principles is the failure is the failure that you're experiencing. And the bottom of page 42 to the top of 43 says, and here's one of my favorite phrases, spiritual principles would solve all my problems, right? All my problems. I've since been brought into a way of living infinitely more satisfying and I hope more useful than the life I had lived before. My old manner of life was by no means a bad one but I would not exchange it best. I would not exchange its best moments for the worst I have now. I would not go back to it even if I could. And that's his experience and that's mine as well. Every single problem, every single problem that I've experienced today can be solved through spiritual principles through the spiritual course of action. It does not mean that we never have problems once we get on this path, but it means that we have a scaffold, we have a structure, we have a set of guiding principles that walks us through it. And, um, you know, I have a course of actions that lead me down a pathway to God. And if you told me, tomorrow that I could eat whatever I want and never have to do all the things I have to do now to live in freedom from the food, I absolutely would refuse the offer. I absolutely would. Because what happens is the things that I have to do are the things now that I love to do. And that happened to me, not by me. And that is an experience that I have seen replicated countless times in others. When this is done thoroughly and correctly, most people delight in this program. Most people that get well never say, I don't want to do this anymore. This is too much work. If they truly have a miraculous experience, most of them really feel quite lit up and excited about it. Um, you know, I, my life is incredibly better for having been a compulsive overeater. Absolutely. Right. And, and really what happened for me is that um, I'm grateful that I'm a compulsive overeater because I only thought that my real problem was food and obesity, but life is life. Life is life. And I've continued to have problems in a recovered state, but I'm grateful because I have, I've got a set of directions that I can apply to every single one of those problems and every single one of those problems is another way for me to get closer to God and fellows and closer to people. Bottom of page 43 says, once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink. 
except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. So this chapter closes and locks all the other doors and ends with one door that's available to someone like me. And the only thing that can save me is an act of providence, right? Is a miracle of God's healing power, which I think, you know, is, is why this chapter ends and then we pick up next time in the agnostic. Because if I'm told that the only solution I have is going to be a spiritual solution, then if I am of agnostic temperament, that is going to have to be remedied. That is going to have to be addressed and fixed, addressed and fixed. And, um, you know, I'm just grateful to be, um, to have been a recipient of the miraculous healing power of God. And with that, I'll pass.